Good afternoon from USC's Annenberg Media Center and welcome to From Where We Are from Annenberg Radio News. For Tuesday, February 27, 2018, I'm Charlotte Kim. First, a news update with Jong Soo Kim. California lawmakers are introducing 10 new bills aimed at increasing gun control. This comes nearly two weeks after 17 people were killed in a school shooting in Parkland, Florida. The bills include expanding gun violence restraining orders and improving gun tracing. One bill proposes changing California's definition of an assault weapon to include high-powered semi-automatic rifles without fixed magazines. California has relatively strict gun laws compared to other states, but Assemblyman Phil Ting of San Francisco says the Parkland shooting has increased the urgency for tighter laws. The Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors voted today on a proposal to address school shootings. Jordan Winters reports. It was a unanimous vote by the Board of Supervisors to reinforce a program that works to identify troubled children. In turn, they hope the program will prevent school shootings and other violence. The School Threat Assignment Response Team was established in 2009. It had just 10 mental health professionals on staff in a county of 10 million people. Supervisor Janice Hahn says that's not enough staff. She championed the plan to enhance the program to address the root cause of gun violence in schools. The move comes nearly two weeks after the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida. For Annenberg Media, I'm Jordan Winters. The USC Roski School of Art and Design has released a new program for graduate students studying design. Carly Price has more. Roski will launch its first two-year MFA program in design this fall. The school has a volatile history with its graduate programs. Just two years ago, an entire class of studio art MFA students withdrew from the program in protest of curriculum changes and the school's alleged lack of commitment to its students. Vice Dean Haven Lindkirk is optimistic about the new program. We are doing um, some incredible work in diversifying the MFA program. It's more multidisciplinary at this point. Our artists are expanding and broadening their practices. Students in the new program are expected to have the opportunity to meet with designers, examine different theories in contemporary design, and gain field internship experience. Applications for the program are now available. For Annenberg Media, I'm Carly Price. Stacy Dash is best known for her acting appearance as Dion in Clueless. Now, she's running for Congress in California. She has turned her legal paperwork into the FEC to run in the state's 44th district, which covers Compton, Watts, Carson, and North Long Beach. Make sure to bring a warm jacket to tonight's study session. Tonight's going to be chilly, hitting a low of 43 degrees. The rain should let up, let up though, leaving you and your midterm study guides nice and dry. Tomorrow's going to be pretty cold too, hitting a high of 61 degrees in the day and a low of 49 degrees in the night. A California court has ordered 57 car dealerships and collision centers to pay penalties for illegally disposing of hazardous materials. The case follows a 2013 investigation by the Santa Clara County Department of Environmental Health. It found that dealerships were disposing of motor oil, electronic waste, and aerosols illegally. The dealerships are all subsidiaries of the retailer AutoNation. The nearly $3.5 million in fines will settle a lawsuit brought by eight California district attorneys. 
Malibu banned plastic straws and utensils from its restaurants. Now, students at USC hope to see similar environmental efforts put in place. Chris Perfett has more. Over 65 restaurants and food vendors in the city of Malibu are affected by the new resolution passed last night. It bans plastic utensils, straws, caps, and lids from being offered with food and drink. Starting on June 1st, establishments will have to use biodegradable utensils made out of paper, bamboo, or wood, or use reusable metal straws and utensils. Malibu is doing this to protect its beaches, as it did in 2008 when it passed a plastic shopping bag ban. That ban was eventually adopted by Los Angeles and then the state of California. USC's Environmental Student Assembly has started a petition to remove plastic straws from USC dining halls. Plastic straws prevent the university from composting its food waste. The Student Assembly hopes to move the university to full composting by this fall. ESA member Feline Tian explains. Plastic is not compostable. We, they've looked into like getting compostable straws, but I don't think that's an option right now. As a university and as like state and as a country, the amount of just like disposable waste that we produce and that we use is kind of like out of control. Feline says USC Dining likes to adopt new initiatives at the start of a new school year, so it's unlikely there will be changes before the next class arrives in August. For member Sheridan Smith, the act of removing plastic straws from dining halls is part of a larger environmental concern. One of the reasons that I personally care about plastic is because of this giant floating void in the middle of the ocean that is literally just an island of plastic. She's talking about one of the Pacific garbage patches. The patches aren't really made entirely of plastic bottles or straws, although there's a lot of that too, but of microscopic pieces of plastic. They're nearly impossible to clean up as well. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration doesn't know the exact size of the garbage patches, but some environmental groups estimate one of these patches is larger than the state of Texas. For Annenberg Media, I'm Chris Perfett. Cantor's Deli in L.A. announced on Twitter that it's suspending its late night and early morning services during the week. The restaurant has traditionally been a 24-hour stop for artists, clubgoers, and the Jewish community of the Fairfax District. It will discontinue dine-in services between 3 and 8 a.m., Monday through Thursday. It will still offer 24-7 delivery and takeout services on those nights. Stephen Luftman is a board member for the Mid-City West Community Council. He has concerns about the future of the community and the businesses moving in. It certainly were, is worrisome. You know, Cantor's is really the center of the community. I mean, it is, it's just going to feel like a modern shopping street and not like this distinct neighborhood. The deli will stay fully staffed on Friday and Saturday nights. The move by Cantor's Deli follows kosher sandwich shop Fleeshik's decision to bow out for good. It's seven minutes after the hour. I'm Jong-Soo Kim. Thanks, Jong-Soo. Coming up on From Where We Are, Joyce Shamoon looks back on news anchor Walter Cronkite and the day he made history. We'll soon see fully driverless vehicles on California roads. Alina Abidi reports on the DMV's new regulations. Previously, companies testing self-driving cars needed a human driver present in each vehicle. Now, the cars only need a remote operator, who can oversee and control the vehicle from afar. 
companies will be able to request a permit for driverless testing or public use. Communications Director Jessica Gonzalez says the California DMV had always intended to allow fully driverless cars. But when it established rules back in 2014, there were only a handful of manufacturers. And the technology just wasn't there yet. At that time, we would create regulations that did have a a backup driver for safety reasons. Now, four years later, there are 50 permit holders working on the technology. But even with the advances, some critics take issue with the idea of remote operators. John Simpson of Consumer Watchdog says they were supportive of California's first round of regulations, which required a human backup driver. These new regulations, however, don't seem safe to him. It's like some kind of crazy video game that somebody's playing, except that uh, human lives are at stake. Simpson believes companies are being irresponsible, that they should put out frequent accident and crash reports. It's incumbent on companies that are essentially using our public roads as their private laboratories to be completely forthcoming. The California DMV will require companies to submit a report within 10 days of any incident or collision, along with yearly reports and communication with local authorities. We're going to have a much um, better picture and a lot more data about who's testing when and where. Gonzalez says public comment on a draft of these regulations was diverse. Many manufacturers believe this is a positive step forward, while some consumer advocates believe driverless vehicles shouldn't be allowed at all. But in the DMV's view, it's worth it. This technology has the chance to potentially save lives on our roadways. And if we can do that, then that's a huge win for everyone. The regulations will go into effect on April 2nd. For Annenberg Media, I'm Alina Abidi. Amazon now has its first automated convenience store in Seattle. It replaces cashiers with a smartphone app and a robot brain, powered by hundreds of small cameras and sensors. The technology knows what you pick up and bills you for it when you leave. It's highlighting tensions between convenience and privacy. We asked USC students how they feel about technology knowing them better than they know themselves. Uh, Violated, definitely. I don't like it. It freaks me out, and I'm not comfortable with it. Yeah, I'm like a little uncomfortable with the fact that the cameras like have the ability to like identify you as an individual and then track you throughout the store to see what you purchase. And I think that's like an interesting concept and it like does like alleviate problems of like congestion in stores. But at the same time, like I feel like that ability, they possess that forever after that. There are definitely problems with security sometimes, uh, such as that big incidents with the credit card companies last year. My main concern with that would be like glitches, you know, how do glitches in whatever algorithm rhythm Amazon's using, how would that affect my privacy? I guess I see like ads targeted towards me and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, they know like a ton of stuff about me and that's really weird. I think sometimes those ads can be very useful in finding like things you actually might like that you might not discover, but in terms of privacy, I feel like sometimes like it's not okay to just look at what I search and try to sell me a product and basically make me become a product. I know that I'm just, I've agreed with a lot of companies for them like collecting my personal data, but I have no clue like how much data is being collected on me. So I probably should be more aware. (laughs) We heard there from Monica Lung, Jacob Lockshin, Kira Stiers, Francis Acevedo, Shreya Totkar, Craig Johnson, and Nathan Yamagachi. A growing list of companies are ending their partnerships with the National Rifle Association as the hashtag NRA gains momentum on social media. The movement began after the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Students activists like Emma Gonzalez, a survivor of the shooting that killed 17, have championed the distancing from the NRA and led the movement on social media. 
in the past two weeks, she's gained over a million Twitter followers, more than both the NRA and its spokeswoman, Dana Loesch. Companies following the boycott include Delta and United Airlines, MetLife and Hertz. The United States Supreme Court has ruled that some immigrants held in long-term detention during deportation proceedings are not entitled to a bond hearing after six months. The court's conservative justices overturned a lower court's ruling in a 5-3 decision that could lead to the indefinite detention of certain classes of immigrants. The ruling covers immigrants who have recently arrived, those with a criminal record, and those who have been detained and face possible deportation. Immigration lawyer Niels Frenzen says as of this morning, the L.A. courts have stopped bond hearings. You know, I have a student and, and one of my uh, my co-director of the immigration clinic are in court right now arguing with an immigration judge that our, you know, that our client should, uh, you know, still go forward with this, uh, you know, with a so-called Rodriguez bond hearing because the Supreme Court's order has not yet been given effect yet by, mm-hmm. the, by the Ninth Circuit. Frenzen says the ruling is also causing confusion for immigrants who have already been to court. There is a question as to what is going to happen to people who've been released on bond under this Ninth Circuit decision. Is the Trump administration going to try to take those people back into custody now that the Supreme Court said that they were not entitled uh, to that, you know, to that bond hearing? The high court has sent the case back to the lower court to figure out whether immigrants have a constitutional right to have a bond hearing. The Supreme Court of the United States is considering a case that could deal a major financial blow to public sector unions. The vote hinges on the legality of union fees for non-members that still benefit from union negotiations. A 2016 ruling on the issue had the court split in a 4-4 decision, with deceased Justice Antonin Scalia, MTC, allowing unions to keep collecting fair share fees. Renny Svernovsky spoke with reporter Adam Ashton. He covers state workers for the Sacramento Bee. What are the historical precedents for this case, especially in California? Uh, in 21 states, unions are allowed to collect fair share fees So, for, for public employee unions. So even if you don't want to participate in the union, the union still is allowed to collect some money from you every month. And it's supposed to cover the cost of bargaining and getting you a good contract or helping you if you're disciplined. Critics of unions think that this money just kind of inflates the budgets of unions and allows them to put money into political programs like helping Democrats win office or supporting ballot initiatives or dominating a school board or a city council race. And they've been trying to uh, make the whole country right to work, which means uh, that there are no more fair share fees. You can choose to join a union, but uh, the union can't take money from you if you don't want it to. Over the past few years, there's been a series of lawsuits going to the Supreme Court that kind of take a dent at fair share fees. Uh, in 2016, the Supreme Court heard a case called Friedrichs versus CTA, and it was about a California teacher who did not want to pay dues to the California Teachers Association. And that's the CTA is an enormous union. Union it represents more than 300,000 California workers, has a lot of power, has a lot of money. The case went to the Supreme Court, and everyone, basically everyone, expected unions to lose. But Antonin Scalia died, and the court was left with a 4-4 tie. And uh, that allowed CTA and other unions to continue collecting fair share fees. So why could a ruling especially impact the financial and membership stability of California unions more so than in other states? Um, California just has a lot of union members uh, and public employee unions. It has near 100 percent participation. 
Today, if you are in a union that collects fair share fees and you choose to go fair share, you're not saving very much money. It's often like a couple dollars a month on the $90 or so you pay for your for your union representation. After fair share fees go, go away, you'll be able to choose to save, to not pay any union dues whatsoever. And all of a sudden now you're saving $1,000 a year. It becomes more attractive to quit the union. This changes the landscape so you suddenly have an incentive to leave the union, whereas today you don't really have an incentive to leave the union. So what could this mean for unions' abilities to influence the political process? Uh, when they have less money, with fewer members, then they're going to have to get more people out on the street, knocking on doors, and making sure people vote. They won't be able to rely on advertising uh, and just counting on having a giant war chest to fight off attacks against them. Sure. And what, what could a ruling mean for workers who do want to be part of unions? Unions have, one, very good contracts. Just the base contract for state workers last year raised their pay by 11.5% over 40 months. In the future, will they be able to get that kind of deal? I, I don't know. They're not going to have as much sway over politicians to make sure they get those deals. If you're a taxpayer, maybe that's good news. Maybe you're happy that uh, unions won't have so much muscle to get to get great contracts for themselves that you're paying for. The last time a case like this came to the Supreme Court was in 2016. Justice Antonin Scalia's death left the court tied 4-4 on the case and let unions continue collecting fair share fees. But with Justice Neil Gorsuch, President Donald Trump's appointee, filling Justice Scalia's seat, what are union leaders expecting? Union leaders expect to lose. The large unions in the state have kind of changed their marketing to attract workers, trying to show that, they, that they're in tune with them and what they want in the workplace. They are making plans to work with less money and fewer mem- fewer members. They held rallies around the state yesterday with this I Choose My Union theme, just, again, trying to remind workers that they add value, uh, that they represent them, and that they are they're stronger together. All right. Well, thank you so much. All right. Happy to do it. That was Rennie Svernovsky speaking with reporter Adam Ashton. And now, a page from history. Fifty years ago today, news anchor Walter Cronkite condemned the Vietnam War during a CBS News special report. Joyce Shamoon has more. In 1968, CBS anchor Walter Cronkite was considered the most trusted man in America. It was the height of American involvement in Vietnam. Cronkite himself went to Vietnam following the Tet Offensive. It was a turning point in the war because enemy forces were able to mount a coordinated attack that shattered the impression the U.S. gave of the war. Cronkite came back and put on a special on February 27, 1968. At the end, he told his audience he was giving them his personal opinion. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. On the off chance that military and political analysts are right, in the next few months we must test the enemy's intentions in case this is indeed his last big gasp before negotiations. But it is increasingly clear to this report that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. Cronkite swayed the public's opinion of the war and discredited what the U.S. government had been saying. It is said that after President Lyndon Johnson watched the broadcast, he said, If I've lost Cronkite, I've lost middle America. In a 2009 interview, Cronkite said he and CBS News president Dick Salant weren't sure how the broadcast would be received by his audience. Uh, There was a lot of concern that uh, there might be such a wave of uh, 
of public reaction against it that uh, he and I both might lose our jobs, in effect, particularly from a felicitation. It was interesting, very interesting, that the number of pro and anti letters, uh, the station reaction, was all about imbalance. And there was not the, the outrage that I thought this broadcast might create. It may be difficult today to understand how much of an impact Cronkite's words would have, especially in an age that's oversaturated with accusations of fake news and a growing distrust of media. Annenberg professor Philip Sieb doesn't think there will ever be another journalist as trusted as Cronkite. Well, we look at how scattered influence is today in today's media world. There, there's something that is almost nostalgic uh, about having a network personality such as Walter Cronkite being able to articulate what Ameri- many Americans felt time about the about the war in Vietnam. The idea of journalists being a counterbalance to the government uh, was really important. Just a week after Cronkite's broadcast, President Johnson announced he would not run for a second term. The Vietnam War did not officially end until 1975. For Annenberg Media, I'm Joyce Shamoon. Have you ever tried to reach for the coils of a black woman's hair? You may have been met with an awkward silence or a hesitant sure if you asked ahead of time. Many black women prefer people to not touch their hair. Tondo Jalomo tells us why. Don't touch my hair. It's a question that we get often, and so it makes us uncomfortable because nobody else is getting asked that question. The question Chelsea Haywood gets asked is, can I touch your hair? Like, no. Why, why do you need to? I'm not... An animal, please don't pet me. Uh, equivalent would be asking someone, can I touch your face? Like many black women, Haywood was born with a head full of tight curls. And as she became a toddler, it grew out into an unavoidable, luscious ball of afro. But in middle school, Haywood's mom thought it was time for a change. She began to make attempts to get her hair as straight as possible. She would wash it, she would hot comb it, which is like a comb that you keep on the fire of the stove and it gets really hot and you comb through your hair and then you would flat iron it and usually leave it with a little bump at the end. Around the age of 18, Haywood decided that she wanted to wear her hair in its natural curl pattern again. After Solange's song, Don't Touch My Hair, became popular, many black women considered it a new declaration of self-ownership. But the natural hair movement is one that has come in cycles over the years. In the 1960s, civil rights activists such as Angela Davis used their natural hair as symbols of protest. Because uh, the reason for it, you might say, is like a new awareness among black people that their own natural appearance, physical appearance is beautiful and it's pleasing to them. For so many, many years, we were told that only white people were beautiful. Only straight hair, light eyes, light skin. However, the importance of black women's hair goes way back before Davis. Black Americans came here literally as property, um, as slaves, and as descendants of slaves with with no citizenship rights, um, no property rights. So claiming ownership over your space and over your body in a very literal sense means a lot, um, because those are still things we're fighting for to this day. 
That's Chelsea Johnson, a sociologist who has written about the natural hair movement in the U.S. and in South Africa. In the United States, black skin and black hair meant you could be bought and sold. Now it means reclaiming your space. In South Africa, under apartheid, the texture of your hair would determine your place in society. One of the measures or ways that、um, the government used to determine whether you could access the spatial, social, economic、um, rights that were only afforded to white South Africans at the time was through the pencil test. So we stuck a pencil in someone's hair and it fell out. Their hair was a loose enough texture that it fell out. You could be granted、uh, the categorization of whiteness. It determined what jobs you could get. It determined where you could go to school,、um, where you could live,、um, what hospitals you had access to, if you went to prison, what prison you would go to. So it meant a lot. Throughout history, black women's hair has been a very charged topic. So it really goes beyond hair. I couldn't really go out and ask white people why they want to touch black women's hair, so I posed the question to Chelsea. First、Haywood. of all, obviously, white people don't have this texture of hair, so they don't know what it feels like, so they want to touch it. But nobody else has. A lot of people don't have freckles, and nobody walks up to white people or other people with freckles and say, "Can I touch your face?" Asians have slant eyes. Nobody asks them, "Can I touch your eyes?" Like. In a city you know, like LA, like, where you know, black women are、like. not an oddity, it is somewhat baffling as to why they even get asked this question. But for as long as they do, black women continue to say. For Annenberg Media, I'm Tando Zom. Now another sports news report with Garrett Schwartz. Thanks, Charlotte. Make it three in a row for the Lake Show, who beat up on the league worst Atlanta Hawks, one twenty-three to one hundred four. Brandon Ingram led the team with twenty-one points and was one of nine double-digit scores for LA. With the win last night, the Lakers have already matched their win total from last season in twenty-one fewer games. LA will travel to face the Miami Heat on Thursday. The banged-up Clippers tip off in the Mile High City against the Nuggets tonight. LA starter Danilo Gallinari won't play with a bruised right hand and says he's unsure when he'll return. Avery Bradley also remains out indefinitely. The injuries come at a bad time for the Clips, who sit one game behind Denver for the eight seed in the West. Pro-bound USC quarterback Sam Darnold says he will not participate in throwing drills at the NFL Combine early next month. Instead, the potential number one pick plans to focus on his athletic skills and interviews. Darnold will throw, however, at USC Pro Day on March 21st. The six-game win streak for USC baseball has come to an end, falling 12-2 to the NC Dinos of the Korean Baseball Organization. Still, it was only the Trojans' second loss of the season. Reporter Sebastian Vega has more on USC's early success. For a young USC team, a slow start on offense wasn't all that surprising. So far this season, eight Trojans have made their college debut, but it didn't take long for the Trojans' bats to awaken. USC outscored the Villanova Wildcats 32 to 14 in a three-game series this weekend. Head coach Dan Hubbs says the weekend sweep has his team feeling more confident. I think coming into the weekend, when they were looking at their numbers, you can get a little bit skittish. You go, "Oh my goodness, we're hitting like about 200," and 
uh, but they didn't let that affect them and and we come out of it and I'm sure we're hitting around 260 270 now and and that's a lot more closer to where we expect this team to be it's big for a young team to learn how to to win and and I think we're on the right track shortstop Ben Ramirez suffered a broken hand after being hit by a pitch on Saturday the Trojans will be without the standout freshman for four to six weeks Coach Hubbs says relying on the team's depth will be key to success over the course of their long season. Our guys who haven't got a lot of time the first couple weeks to get them into the game and get them some at-bats and get them some innings and just to see who kind of emerges because we're always looking for who's that next guy. The Trojans will host Loyola Marymount at 6 tonight before heading on the road to face Arkansas this weekend. For Annenberg Media, I'm Sebastian Vega. USC looks to rebound from last night's loss with tonight's crosstown matchup against LMU. The Lions won the sole meeting between the two teams last season. That's all for this sports report. From Annenberg Media, I'm Garrett Schwartz. The LA City Council passed a resolution to ensure the city will fulfill its hosting duties for the 2026 FIFA World Cup. The resolution includes the support of local sports companies, including AEG, LAFC, and the LA Rams. City Councilman Mitch O'Farrell cast a lone vote against the resolution due to logistical and financial concerns. However, the LA Trade and Convention Bureau estimates the World Cup could benefit the city by up to $600 million. That's it for From Where We Are Today. Today's show was produced by Renis Fernofsky. Lauren Floyd is associate producer. We had help today from Elise Ellis. Chris Perfett is our board operator. The theme music was composed by Derek Renfro. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Annenberg Media. I'm Charlotte Kim. Thank you.